It was just everything was black. A sound of dust, blood and flesh, burning flesh. I kept screaming, is there anybody alive? And I would not hear anyone. I genuinely thought I was dead. From Aura Studios, this is The Line of Fire with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. In this episode of The Line of Fire, we continue my chat with multi-award-winning Iraqi journalist and my sometime work wife, Mace Albaya. If you missed the first part of our conversation, I'd really recommend you go and listen to it. In it, Mace explains why her family was exiled from Iraq by Saddam Hussein, what life was like during the First and Second Gulf Wars, as well as living on Iraq's road of death, where she wasn't even safe in her own bed. We pick up in this episode talking about the moment that changed her life forever. It was November the 18th, 2005. And you were working with the US TV network NBC at the time at the Hamra Hotel in Baghdad. Tell me what happened. Our our office was based in Alhamra Hotel in central Baghdad. We knew through different intel that there is a suicide bomber who's going to come to the to the hotel and blow himself or herself. So we were coming every single day to the office, looking at each other, not knowing who is going to wear the vest and blow himself inside the hotel. But we had to continue to do that job because there's no other way. So you knew the hotel was... A target attacked. Was was there any talk to move to another hotel, to move base? No, because two other hotels were blown up just before our hotel. So there was no other places. So it was multiple incidents. And that is how we actually gathered as well the information. Because there was a Palestine hotel uh, explosion, which I believe it was Reuters. And I think at that time it was CBS in that building. So there were a couple of incidents. It was We were not the first. So we just knew that something is going to happen, but we didn't know when and how. Uh, on the 17th, I had a night shift. And my mother on that day insisted that she would come and stay with me in my room. She knew, of course, about what's happening, but she didn't know that there is a threat on our building. And I had to accept and I said, it's fine. It's just going to be Friday. And anyway, Fridays is quiet because there are no newspapers in the morning to translate. And most people just going to be chilling. Friday is like the Sunday, the Sunday. In, 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 in the West. It's the day of rest. So, yes. So, so Friday was just the day of rest. Local newspapers, they are not released on Friday morning. So I was sleeping and actually... Uh, 
I woke up at 7 a.m., but I felt like I don't need to go up upstairs in the office because there are no newspapers to translate. I might as well just stay chilled. At, I think it was probably 8 a.m. or half past 8, I was still in bed. And then the explosion happened. A suicide car bomb just came from the front gate. And I just see, like, a storm just coming towards us. The windows and the curtains were just falling on us, me and my mom in the room. And just like a whole wave of sand just coming on our way. So I took my mom and I run and I just put her in, in, the, in the bathroom because, of course, this is going to be the safest place because they have no windows. And I said, Mom, please stay in, 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 in the bathroom till I come. Don't ever move from here. My clothes were next to the window, actually. So I needed to change my pajama. And I went just to pick up my clothes next to the window. And then a, a, a second suicide car bomb has blown off again. And it threw me till the end of the, end of the room. So I fell on my knees and was just, my mom was screaming and dragging me to the bathroom. I changed my clothes very quickly and I opened the door. The door was open, was already half cracked. So I pushed the door and I forced it up. And it was just, everything was black. It's sound of dust blood and flesh, burning flesh. And it was very weird quietness after that. I genuinely thought I was dead. I kept screaming, is there anybody alive? And I would not hear anyone. And that was, I was on the third floor and my office was on the ninth floor. So I had to run to the ninth floor to see my colleagues. And I didn't see anyone. Everyone was hiding. Everyone was scared. And uh, I went to my office and I see a huge piece of concrete literally on my chair. And I kept looking at it and thinking, only if I was there, I would have gone. And just after that, like the number of bullets was just going flying everywhere. So what the insurgents did is that they had two, two suicide car bombs and after that they tried to, to break into the building and wanted to take us hostages. So I had to run and just go and pick up my mom and at least we we are going higher and hopefully if anything happens then at least the... Americans can pick up from the helicopters and we can escape. So higher in, 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 in the hotel? In the, build, in the hotel. But I, I, was, I was feeling ashamed. How could I do that to my mother to put her in that position? I kept looking at my chair and looking at everything around me and how everything was just in pieces. And that moment I said, this is, this is not how I want to end. This must stop. But this didn't even stop there. This is not even 
how bad it was. And at this point, do you know if anyone's been killed? No, but I keep smelling flesh. Mm. And I see bones and flesh in the swimming pool of the building. Well, I don't know who does it belong to. Um, the security of um, NBC, they had installed different cameras around the building. They have the CCTV footage of around and they wanted to know exactly what's happening. This was not live footage. This mm -hmm. was a f footage re recorded for the incident. Mm -hmm. Because just after the explosion, there was no cameras anymore. All of the cameras have flown. Uh, so we just wanted to see what happened in, in the first incident. And if there, anybody has walked in already in the building, uh, that we could suspect that they might be, you know, insurgents who are now in our building. So I brought the receptionist to the um, uh, NBC security and I said, just can you help us to actually recognize the people? There's one guy who was wearing um, a leather jacket and just walking peacefully towards the building. And he stops and turns on his right and just looks at someone who's sitting in his van. And after that, the bombing happened. And that's it. This is the end of the footage. And so the person that you were watching in the leather jacket, he was just an innocent bystander. He's just a bystander. So we kind of wanted to at least know who, who this person is. Um, and we brought the receptionist to look at it. And then when he, um, he looked at it, he started laughing. Uh, and he kept asking us to repeat the footage. And it turned out it was his son. And he was just laughing, saying, now I know why he's not picking up the phone. And uh, and after that, actually, this receptionist continued to work. And he refused to take any time off. And we had to be tortured by seeing him in the morning, every morning, uh, coming in and outside the office. And... Um, and he doesn't want to have any mercy towards him. He doesn't want to show any sympathy and he wants to be strong. Uh, and that really like made our life hell, like even seeing him every single morning. And he didn't break down? No. He was just laughing. He was anxiously laughing. And he just, he, he just felt like he couldn't cry. And what? What was his son doing? What what had his son been doing? His son actually was working in, in the building. He was, I, I believe he was working in the bakery in the building. So he was, he was just, just coming to work. Yes. And you happened to show him this footage and you happened to watch his son being blown to pieces. Yes. And I had to translate for him and... I just was just joking. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. And, and he kept saying, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's, you know, that's life. And just kept moving on. But I felt like I can't live this. This can't be my mother. Mm. And I can't be the one who actually seen my mother having this. So I, I had to do, I had to decide something. I had to leave. Where did you sleep that night? I went back home and yeah, 
the next day I came to the office like nothing happened, just picking up the rubble and getting a new uh, new computer and setting up the, the office like nothing happened. You continued as usual, as normal? Just as usual. Had something happened inside you? I all I almost felt like that piece of concrete fell on my heart. That is kind of that moment. I cannot erase it from my head. I felt like something really died in me. How did that experience change you? It made me more determined to change my my destiny. I understood at that moment, this is no longer an imaginary door in a war. That door, now I have literally to break it to pieces and get out. That's exactly how I felt. And that is, I think, why it built that determination on me facing my fear. Despite having anxiety, I still have to face it. Um, That kind of... Me how I how, how who I am now. Did that experience change your perspective on life? Yes, it made me think I cannot take anything for granted. As I said, I have to live my day as if I'm going to be dead tomorrow. It made me feel like every single time I say goodbye to my family. I might not open the door again. So I have, I have to be good to myself and to my family. That's what made me feel like. What did it teach you about yourself? It told me that I am a survivor. I thought my life was so ordinary. I thought that I... um, I'm just going to accept whatever comes to me. But that actually, that changed me. Did it feel empowering to feel like a survivor? Yeah, because you're taking your own destiny. So in a way, it's, it's funny, isn't it? An incident like that, where you have absolutely no control over your life, made you feel that you could be in control of your life. Well... You don't have control over what happens to you, but you have a control of how you react to it. Hmm. And that is exactly what it taught me. Hmm. That just because something bad happened to me doesn't make me a weak person, but I am going to be weak if I'm going to surrender to it. Do you think anything good came of it? Yes, it did, because it made me who I am. Sometimes I wish I am I am a girl who grew up in East London and maybe I am an accountant or someone who's doing an admin job somewhere peaceful. But then I look at myself and I say, I don't think if I, I had that will to survive if I didn't have this experience. So I'm grateful for it. Are you really? I am grateful because... You have to reconcile with your past. I can't, I can't, again, I don't want to, I don't want to feel defeated. 
Yeah. I can't change it. So I might as well be grateful to the good thing that comes out of it. Would you change it if you could? Change of being there. You know what? I never dare to ask myself that question. Because I think I don't want to feel weak. Do you think if that hadn't happened, you'd be sitting here with me now in England, living a very different life? Maybe. I mean, who knows? Maybe I would have been your hairdresser, although I would never trust myself doing any of that job. I don't but... think I would have trusted you with my hair as much as I love you, Mace. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, it definitely exposed me to a very rich life, which is why I'm saying I am grateful for it. Mace, there, there was another moment, another incident um, that caused you to leave. So one of the things that actually made me decide to leave, when I was working for um, um, one of the American networks in, in Baghdad, I was looking for Saddam Hussein lawyer. So I was looking to, because Saddam Hussein's trial was about to start, so we wanted to know who is the lawyer and what does he look like. And we were hoping to get an exclusive interview with him. I was looking all around to find him. And then I was talk I was interviewing a lawyer for another thing. And I said, I don't know if you ever know um, the lawyers of Saddam Hussein. Do you know how can I find them? And he said, well... If I would be, well, go to the law syndicate and just pull their files from the archive. So I did. So I went to the syndicate and I said, I just want to get the files for uh, the lawyers of Saddam Hussein. At that time, there were 13 lawyers. And, and the guy looked at me and he said, why are you looking for the archive? They are just standing in front of you. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? <laughs> so I just run to, to them. And I said... All, uh, all of the lawyers were there. All of the lawyers were there. And the, um, the top lawyer was Khalil al-Dalemi. And he, is the, uh, he was representing Saddam Hussein. So I went straight to him and I said, excuse me, I want to talk for, uh, with, with the lawyers of Saddam Hussein. And I was acting as if I don't know who, uh, who they were. And I said, I don't know where, they, where can I find them. And he said, no, you're looking exactly at them and you know who, who, who we are. Tell me now quickly who you are. And I said, uh, yeah, my name is Mason. I'm working for NBC. And I was trying to mash it in a way that they will think it's NBC, the Saudi channel. Rather than an American Rather channel. Rather than an American channel because, you know, they're representing Saddam Hussein. So... <laughs> So the guy literally stood and he starts shouting at me and he's like, you're working with the infidels, you're working with the traitors. And he was about to pull his gun and he's like, I need to kill her right now. She's he's, working with the traitors. He said that? Yeah. And how did you know he was about to pull out his gun? Well, his gun is just even in his pocket. It's like out in his pocket. 
So he was literally putting his hand on his trigger and he was just about to pull his his gun from his pocket. And he's like, we have to kill her now. And I froze. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't even there with a high-risk person. My driver was outside the syndicate waiting for me. You were there alone? I was just there alone. I was standing in the middle alone. And and I just froze. I didn't know what to say. And and just in the heated moment when, you know, he heard about the Americans, he got really angry. But then within seconds, he calmed down and said, no, hold on, hold on. We should not kill her. She needs to tell the Americans what Saddam Hussein think of them and what is really happening in his cell. So from now, we're actually going to tell you what Saddam Hussein says, and you can tell the Americans what what he feels about them. And I said, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I just want to get out. <laughs> and and he took my number, and I, and I left the building, and I was shaken. So when I went back to my bureau and I told them what happened, they were looking at me like, are you crazy? Is this just how it happened? And I said, yes. But actually, from now on, we can have an unlimited access to the lawyers. And it was by luck that this has happened. And do you think it was by luck that he didn't kill you? Do you think he could have killed you? Oh, yeah. I mean, his eyes have zero mercy. I could see the anger in his eyes. Um, And I'm thinking, God, I'm gone now. That's it. Did you ever speak to him again? Yes, I spoke to him many times afterwards. On the telephone? On the telephone only. He calls me and tells me what Saddam Hussein is doing, like when he was on hunger strikes or when he's, he's not happy about the prosecution or things like that. Um, but that, that was very lucky to have that. But actually, it turned against me later on because the lawyers of Saddam Hussein were targeted. They start to get targeted after the start of the, the trial of Saddam Hussein. So two lawyers were targeted. One was killed and the other was injured. So I called the injured lawyer just to check on him and to get some information, of course. And the lawyer told me, listen, Mace, it's actually um, now we have to draw a list of all of the journalists we were in touch with. And we think that they were leaking our information about about our whereabouts or they are kind of knowing our location by knowing our phone numbers. So now um, the the insurgency at that time, uh, who are supporting Saddam Hussein and the lawyers, they're going to start to target all of the journalists who were in touch with the lawyers. And he said, your name is on the top of the list. So if I would be you, I have to leave today before tomorrow. So you were on a hit list? Yeah. What did you do? Well, I didn't know what to do because if I tell my my channel, they're going to give me, you know, a week or two um, off and I will have to hide again inside the country because I have nowhere to go. And, um, and then after that, I have come back like nothing happened. So that, that actually call happened on Wednesday. I fled the country on Friday. But the insurgents, once you're on their hit list, you're on their hit list till you're gone. So what happened from the minute you heard that news to 
to, to when you left and where did, how did you plan it? I, I sat with my bureau chief at that time and I said, actually, I am looking to take a course and a study in the UK. And I would really appreciate if I just get a letter from you to tell that I am your employee and I'm looking to just go to do a course on my expenses, not on you. And I will just travel to the UK. So I might as well just travel to the UK at least for three or six months till things calm down or things change. And she luckily agreed to write me this letter and give it to me. So I booked a flight and I went to uh, Jordan to apply for UK visa because the Iraq, uh, the British consulate was not even working in, in Iraq because it was too dangerous at that time. And did your parents know? At that time, no. Did you tell anybody? Just my best of friends because the problem is that when you tell your parents about these things then you, and you are going to stay in the country, you don't know what they're going to react like. And you're just gonna you, you're just gonna pass them your anxiety. So there's no point. They can't change anything. It's not like you're a child in a school and tell them you got bullied. So you know that they can't help you. And actually they are even more helpless than me in that situation. So I had to take it on my own. And how did you feel as you were flying out? I didn't even get the visa very easily. I mean, I got rejected. I applied for a student visa. And after weeks, they actually refused my visa. And the at the embassy, they they hand me my passport and said, oh, your passport is cancelled because you you have a fake passport. I said, are you serious? It's a bloody Iraqi passport. Who would fake an Iraqi passport? I mean, why would I fake this? this if I want to fake a passport, I, at least I would get something that could get me further than an Iraqi passport. So anyway, so they cancelled my passport and gave me uh, the rejection letter. My mother kept calling me, asking me if I, uh, what happened to my visa. And I didn't want to say that I got rejected because they, she would tell me, just go back home. So instead I said, well, the embassy is closed. They are just repainting it. And And my mother used to call me every single day, say, is is the painter dry? And I said, no, it rained again. So they had to repaint it again. And I kept bluffing with my parents because I just wanted to to leave. And, and I thought that this is going to be my last chance. But I was just sitting waiting every single day that not knowing what's going to happen to my life. And I was just about to book a flight back home. But then I thought about it, if this is happening, and it's, this is 2006, what's going to happen in 2012? If I'm treated like this now, God knows what I'm going to be treated like in 2012. So I decided to go back to the Iraqi embassy and apply for a new passport and go back again to the British embassy and say, if you, if you are refusing me on the ground of fake passport, here's a new passport. And they grant me a visa, a student visa, and I flew to London straight away. And Mace, how do you now cope with the trauma? Because there is, there is trauma. 
talking to you now. I can, you know, I can see it in your face, the pain of, of having these experiences, having lived through that war. How do you cope with that? I go through therapy. Sometimes I use sports to just channel my anger. And, and sometimes I just have to kind of visualize it and keep saying to myself, this was the past. You're no longer trapped. You are free now to choose your own destiny. And there's something about trauma and control. Like once you have control over your trauma, you can actually manage it. And of course, some nights I can't. Is, is it always there? Is it something you've learned to live with? Yeah. I mean, I, I say, I mean, I say to my friends, I cannot, I cannot remember the night that I put my head on a pillow and just fall asleep. I envy anyone who actually do that. And I think with my, now I have a daughter, so when I see my daughter, I keep fearing that it could have been her mm. that has to go through all of the trauma that I have gone. Mm. Well, thank God it was me. And I think um, having a child outside the war zone, it really allowed me to feel that I am in control. And I managed to change my, my life and not just my life, but my future family as well. A very beautiful, gorgeous daughter, might I add. Has having your little girl changed anything now? Has it changed the kind of stories you cover? Yeah. Tell me. She actually pushed me to be even a braver. Since the moment she was in my in my body. She really taught me a lot. And I think she's probably one of the main reasons why I am trying to overcome my trauma. It's Ramit Navai here, and thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful, but important. As I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their personal stories. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts from. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. Do you think that is an issue with doing our job? That there's such high adrenaline, even when it is traumatic, that it's hard to adjust to a mundane, normal life back here? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a Stockholm syndrome. 
it's that love relationship with a very abusive situation. This, uh, I know that what we are doing is for the good, but it's actually really abusive to us. It's not abusive to others. But we are no longer the same people once we hit the war zones and once we see what we see. We cannot erase it from our brains and our memories. Do you think it's addictive? Absolutely. Are you addicted? No. I tell you why. Because I only now go after a story that really my heart and soul fall for. I no longer just go for war in terms of just for the sake of being there. Yeah. I'm very content where I am. And you ended up back in Iraq. How did that feel? Was it different the second time round? The first time, actually, I had only three days. I could not sleep day and night. My, my anxiety was, was at its peak. I just want, I just wanted, I almost like felt like the door is going to shut again. I had the same fear of the door being shut. And I had to keep reminding myself that this is not going to happen again. Don't, don't have this fear. So I had to fight it. And I intentionally wanted to fight it because I wanted to break that cycle. If I don't break it, no one else can break it for me. So would you say in a way you needed to face your demons? Yeah. And the, the, the big demon was Iraq. Oh, the big demon was absolutely Iraq. It was haunting me. And it's, it's like, you know, you're drawn to it, mm. but you can't go. And you know if you're going to go, it's like almost like... It's almost like, you know drawn to the electricity and you could actually be electrocuted. Mm -hmm. But I keep saying, like, this time I'm going to be armed. So it's not going to do the same thing to me. Well, we met in 2016. Uh, the war against ISIS was raging. And we were making a documentary in Iraq about what was happening behind the war against ISIS and we were investigating the Shia militias together. And watching you operate, Mace, in Iraq was just a fish in water. I mean, it was quite, it, it is quite extraordinary the way, first of all, you deal with very stressful situations because I know that you get very stressed and anxious. And I can only tell because I know you so well so I can see it in your eyes. Otherwise, no one else would be able to tell. Thank you. You're as cool as a cucumber. But I know that it's still difficult for you dealing with stressful situations. How do you manage to keep it together like that? I keep saying to myself that, as I said, I, 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 ha I have to face it. And for me, Iraq is, is, is a very personal and important story. And I want to give it justice. Mm. And I know people who are 
you have two types of people who are covering it. I mean, of course, there are more than two people, but the majority are actually the two categories. It's people who are living inside and they get intimidated and they cannot report the right thing because they fear of the retaliation. And people who are from the outside and they don't know anything about the story and they just don't really care. Sometimes, of course, I mean, some they do care, but they don't really know the story. And then they go in and they get the story, whatever it is, and they get out. So I have the luxury of being in between where I am an insider, but I am an outsider. I can go in, I can get what anyone else can get inside the country if they have the courage to report it. But at the same time, I can just get out. And you don't have to live with the consequences, which is very powerful because you can now do stories that local local Iraqi journalists can't do for their own security and safety. Yes, and that is why I think that is as well what... Because I have this gift right now, I have to use it. Mm. I cannot just sit down and watch mm. and just say, I don't care, you know. I've gone out, escaped. And it's funny that when we were working together, there were incidences that you can be in the same crew, but that I will find frightening that maybe you wouldn't, that you would find frightening that I wouldn't. And there was one incident. Well, we were taken by a commander, a sheer militia commander, took us to a secret prison. And it was one of these black prisons. Nobody was supposed to know of its existence. It was illegal. Uh, they were holding a whole load of uh, Sunni men. It's a sectarian um, issue right here in front of us. And the commander took us in, and I know that you were particularly scared when we were doing this. Tell me about that. Well, when the commander, we were we were driving from just the borders of where ISIS were at that time. Uh, and then we were supposed to go straight away to, to Crete, um, to Crete province in Iraq. And the commander decided to change the route. We had been with the Shia militia commander, hadn't we? Yes. We've been interviewing him. And we've been interviewing him. We, we pushed with the questions. You kept telling me off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were pushing with the questions. <laughs> you kept jabbing me in, the, and I, <laughs> in my ribs. <laughs> and I kept saying, just take it easy. <laughs> and, and, as, and you being you, <laughs> not listening, and kept saying, okay, well, we will push it. So then after that, the commander decided to actually take us off-road and, and he managed to take us to a secret prison and said... Which was completely unexpected. Yeah. I mean, we'd been investigating these secret prisons. Everybody had told us they exist, but you're never going to see one. And actually people was, were, were questioning their existence because there was no evidence. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of the desert with this Iraqi Shia militia commander that I've been interrogating and you've been giving me the stink eye and jabbing me. <laughs> saying, we are with a really dangerous guy. What are you doing, Ramita? And we're suddenly being driven off into the middle of the desert to a secret prison. I mean, I remember us looking at each other, 
Do you remember, Mace? Yeah, well, I said to you, like, uh, you know, we'd better get off with dignity than actually being dragged <laughs> and just forced out of the car. So we walked in and then suddenly the... You were scared that they were going to drag us in that prison and... Well, exactly. It's, you know, we were in a place that there's no even phone connection. Yeah, and there was nothing. There was nothing. It was in the middle of nowhere. And you could scream for, for hours and no one would hear you. And when we walk in inside the prison, we find more than a hundred, almost, yeah. yeah, more than a hundred of prisoners. Very scared. And very scared. Malnourished looking prisoners. And even children. Yeah. And there was like some children actually screaming on the, on the first floor yeah. in that building. And I kept looking at the fear in these men, looking at us, not knowing what on earth we are doing here. Mm. And the commander kept saying, if you ever get any of these images outside this room, you will all be killed. And so we hadn't taken the camera in. No. We'd been told no cameras. And, yeah, he he was a pretty threatening guy, this commander. We were just, as far as we knew, we were just walking around having a look. Pretty shit scared. Yeah. And then, uh, actually, one of our team was in, in the back behind us. He put his phone in his pocket and he stopped filming everything. And this was one of our local team, a lo uh, an Iraqi, which, I mean, that makes it even more dangerous yeah so we didn't know did we that he was filming this all no did he know that the commander was threatening us all with death if pictures of this place came out yes he did and he didn't care he just did it for us because he he really wished to have this footage coming out he believed so strongly didn't he it's funny because he he's a shia yeah. And the commander was a Shia and he believed so strongly that Shias should not be doing this. Yeah, and then after that we we fin finished the tour in in the inside the prison and then after that we went out to do an interview with the commander who was bragging about how they keep their prisoners healthy and they're not tortured. Oh, and, I remember that. He was very happy with himself. Yeah, and because he, they didn't they didn't torture them. And he said, uh, he said, so look, didn't he say they only hit them? Yeah, he said, no, we we only hit them, we only slap them, uh, but we are not like the Americans use the uh, electric chair. And I said, well, there's no electricity here. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, don't worry, we have generators. <laughs> so. I mean, we had to break it with the humor, otherwise we're not going to get out. <laughs> I remember you making him laugh. I remember you being so nervous all the way through. I mean, do you blame me? <laughs> no, I don't blame you. Yeah, and of course, I mean, and that's, that's also when you don't speak the language, you understood exactly everything he was saying, and every now and again you would whisper to me, I thought very loudly, by the way. <laughs> I was always really worried when he started whispering to me. And there was always the word death in there somewhere. Kill, death. Yeah, but we survived it. We did survive and then we drove out, didn't we? We interviewed him. We drove out. 
there was that relief that we'd been driven out of the desert. And then we were shown the footage. Yeah. Yeah, by the time that we were beating ourselves for not being able to film that, yeah. our colleague literally says, oh, don't worry, yeah, I have everything on my phone. <laughs> and I remember you and I just screamed. Yeah. We just did a little dance, didn't we? We just screamed and danced. Yeah, I don't think we... That was, uh, that was as um, we say, the, our gold dust. So that was definitely... That was our gold dust. That yeah. was the evidence that we needed. Yeah, and we did it. Yeah. Mace, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the one question I ask all of my guests. And if there's, if there's one bit of wisdom you could impart to our listeners from what you've learned from your experiences, what is it? Live your life. Live your life. You never know when it's going to end. And believe in that door that you you draw on your wall. Every single one of us has that imaginary door. But just have the courage to knock it. Because you can. And no wonder, sorry, no matter who tells you that you can't do it, you will do it. That's what I would say to anyone who listens wherever they are, doesn't have to be in a war zone. It could be in central London, but they feel as trapped as me being in the middle of Baghdad in 2003. Mace, wise words, always, always, always wise words with you. Thank you so much. I can't tell you what it's been like to hear you talk about your experiences and share them with me. Really, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. You can find Mace's double Emmy winning documentary Undercover with the Clerics on BBC Online and in the US on PBS Frontline's website where you'll also find the documentaries we made together. Iraq's Assassins and Iraq Uncovered. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Matt Raz and Richard Osman. <laughs>